Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Roy Shlomo Shasha, who is the editor of a number of Svarim and, and articles and other things mainly published through Avat Shalom. And in this episode, we'll be discussing uh, Rav Shem Tov Gagin, who was the Av Bezin of the Spanish and Portuguese community in England, and he was the principal of the Montefiore College, the Oil Moish of Yehudit in England. And we'll be discussing Rav Gagin and his life and his writings, and, and as there are a number that uh, Roy has published and are working on. So first of all, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, and I uh, look forward to this chat. So let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background, and especially how you got into editing svarim and manuscripts. Okay, well, everybody is supposed to believe that in their lives it's a certain element of Hashkaha Pratit, of, of divine providence. And maybe maybe this, this comes through in the story that I'm going to tell you. Uh, I had a normal childhood like everybody else has got. I went to, went to school, I went to yeshiva, I went to university. And when I was about 35 or 36, I was stagnating a bit with my learning, and I didn't know what to do. And I couldn't find any shurim that really fitted, fitted what I wanted to do. So I went, to, uh, I went back to university again at the grand age of 35, uh, 36, and I did an MA and a PhD in Jewish studies, which gave me a slightly different perspective on Jewish texts and sort of look at various texts that I would never previously have looked at before and various tools to go and look at texts as well. And after I finished my PhD, I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't really have anything particularly that I wanted to go and write. Shortly before that, a friend of mine had uh, asked me to go and proofread uh, some, some, uh, some manuscripts that he had edited to prevent them for publication. And I thought, well, this is, this is interesting and fun, so maybe let's give this a whirl. So what happened was that after I finished my PhD, there were some books that I specifically wanted to edit. My wife's great-great-uncle was the chief rabbi of Baghdad and wrote a number of sforim, Perush on the Torah, a Perush on Tehillim, a book of Drashot, and a, a short uh, countries on Hilchot Shechita. So I thought, I'll prepare these for print. Why not? This is, uh, this is fun. So I was gaily involved in doing these things. And my publisher, Abad Shalom, I had a meeting once with, uh, with the Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Yaakov Hillel Shita. And he said, you know, we've got a whole heap of manuscripts of Hacham Eliyahu Mani. He was the chief rabbi of Hebron, and he was the teacher of the Ben Ishai who introduced him to the study of the Kabbalah. And if you look in the Ben Ishai, many times he says, I asked my friend Hacham Mani what was the custom in Hebron or what was the, the custom about this or that or to explain some Kabbalistic idea or another. And that also took another few more years, and uh, I really got into it, and I really started to enjoy it. So it was a labor of love. I made Aliyah nine years ago, and since then, it's made life a lot easier for me, because I'm in regular contact with, with Arabat Shalom, who are my, who are my publishers, and uh, we're very well together, and it's a very happy relationship. What was, and was you, you have a connection with Arabat Shalom, or you just started publishing through them? Well, that's also a case of Hashka Habratit. Rabbi, Rabbi Hillel is actually distantly related to both myself and my wife. And when I was in Yeshiva, I used to live very close to his house. And uh, I used to go sometimes for fr on Friday night for dinner. So one Friday night, I turned up for dinner. And he, I said, you know, I'm going to Manchester on Sunday. Uh, I was 
I'm going, I'm going home. I'm going back to Manchester. He said, look, you're going to Manchester. Will you go and pay a visit to um, Rabbi Morris Gagin, who was the son of Shem Tov Gagin? Maybe he's got some manuscripts of his dad that he might want to have published. So I thought, okay, why not? So I turn up in the Bet Knesset on Friday night, and I see this gentleman, and I said to him, do you have any manuscripts of your dad? Well, he died, he, 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 his father passed away in 1953. He said, it's a good job you asked that, because the last volume of the Keter Shem Tov, which is his main work that deals with uh, various halachot uh, and minhagim, was never published. So you come along, uh, we'll have a cup of tea on Sunday at 11 o'clock, and uh, I'll show you what's what. So he gave me a copy of this manuscript and copies of some, some of his other works. And I tootled along back to Israel on the airplane with him and went off to Rabbi Hillel and said, please, do you want to publish this? So I thought, well, he said, fine. So that's how I ended up having a collection, both with Rabbi Gagin and with Rabbi Hillel, and how I ended up doing editing. Wow, that's really interesting. And that goes right for this podcast episode. So let's talk about Chacham Shem Tov Gagin. Who was he? You know, where was he born? And who were his rebbeim? and where he studied? You know, his, his basic biography. Okay, sure. He's got a very interesting and somewhat unusual history. He was born in Yerushalayim, in the old city of Jerusalem, in 1885. His family house was next door to the capitalistic yeshiva of Bet El, which, if anyone knows the old city of Jerusalem, it's just it's near it's near the Rova. It's near, it's very close to where the current yeshiva of Bet El is in Rohov Bet El. And his family had been associated with the Shiva for many generations. His father was uh, Rav Yitzhak Gagin, who was a Manahel of the Shiva. And his father, his grandfather, Rav Shalom Moshechai Gagin, was also a number, was the author of a number of very important Sfarim uh, and Shirot and Teshuvot, and served on the Sephardi Bedin of Jerusalem, was also associated with the Shiva. His great grandfather, was Avram Gagin, who was the Hachambashi, the Rishon Sion. I think he died about 1850, to give you some historical context of it. He had married the daughter of Rav Sham Sharabi, the noted Kabbalist. And so he had a tradition of Kabbalah in his family, as well as a very advanced he, uh, Hebrew studying, for at least, uh, at least five generations which is quite a weight to bear. And many times in the Ketesh Shem Tov, he refers back to his childhood, and if he wasn't sure about a minhag or what to do, he would, he'd report to you, this was the minhag of Betel, where I, uh, which, I, which, I, which I saw with my father, or I did with my father, or whatever. And a lot of the, some of the practices that they had were, we'll discuss them a little, a little bit later on, perhaps, now's not the time, and were unusual. For example, in the courtyard of the Yeshiva, there was a well, and so they had the custom to go and do Tashlich always on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, even if it was on Shabbat, because obviously there was no problem of carrying. There was a well right in front of, in front of their nose. You didn't have to go anywhere. So they deemed it to be paramount to go make, or pre very preferable to, to do the, perform the custom of Tashlich on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. So he brings him, he mentions this along with many of the other traditions that he had he received from the yeshiva and, and sees these as, Halachic 
and historical things of importance that he feels that he has to go and record. Anyway, his childhood was somewhat unconventional because he he writes that he went to an which is called a secondary school. It was called Doresh Zion. This was a somewhat revolutionary school in Jerusalem because it had some hours of the day, I don't know how many, devoted to non-Jewish subjects, which was quite revolutionary at the time, and met with the ire of a number of the um, more zealous inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's recorded that the headmaster of the school had the cart of the Hebra Kadisha left outside his house, which was a typical sign of disapproval. And there's one recorded incident of physical violence being being used against the students of the of the school. And uh, fortunately, this, this attack was very um, effectively repulsed. But it was he, he had a slightly unusual education for his time. He writes that he had um, he received semicha from Rav Chaim Berlin. And he received a Kabbalistic education at a very early age from a rabbi called Alafi, who was one of the, uh, the rabbis of the Shiva of Betel. And life would have carried on for him like it had for his parents and his grandparents, save for one thing, that in the year about 1909 or 1910, the Ottoman Empire introduced a draft and all males, irrespective of religion, of a certain age, had to go into the army. And a number of the more religious Jews who were living in Jerusalem or elsewhere were not really very enthusiastic about this. And he went off to Egypt and he became a Dian on the Betin in Cairo. So he, es he escaped the draft and he was there for about 14 or 15 years when he got an invitation to come to Manchester to go and head uh, the Sephardi congregation there. When he came to Manchester, he found that there wasn't one Sephardi congregation, there were two, and they actually lived next door to each other. And this was the community that I grew up in. One community was Spanish and Portuguese, which was the long established establishment synagogue or religious movement for Sephardi Jews in the in the United Kingdom. The Sephardi Jews were the first Jews to settle in England after they were readmitted by Oliver Crom Cromwell, in the same way that the Sephardi Jews were some of the earliest Jews that came to America. And the oldest Sephardi synagogues in America are, are Spanish and Portuguese, like the, the synagogue in Rhode Island, or the synagogue of Sherid Israel or the synagogue in Philadelphia, it was called McVeigh Israel, it was founded in about 1740 or 1750. These are all establishments that would predate the American Revolution. So th there was an established community of uh, Jews from the Balkans, from the wider Ottoman Empire, uh, from Italy, from Salonika, who settled in Manchester, in the, in, the, in the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, who came together to form one congregation. And as a result of the breakup of the Ottoman Empire in 1918, there were the few, Ottoman, the few Jews from Oriental countries, what you call Mizrahim, <coughs> came to Manchester because there was so much political uncertainty where they were living in places such as uh, Iraq, or even some came, came, came even from Israel to Manchester. And it was a, also a 
major center of trade, export, export trade to the Middle East. So there grew up a Mizrahi community side by side with a Spanish and Portuguese community. And I remember when I was young, there were two synagogues. They were literally about 100 meters apart. And they really had very little to do with each other. And this is the community that Shem Tov Gagin came into. And he, for the first time in his life, or possibly the second time in his life, was, it was exposed to seeing a type of Sephardi Jew that had no Kabbalistic input at all into their prayers. And it's probable that he encountered, in when he was in Eretz Israel, the Yemenite Jews. And he mentions the, the, the prayers, the, the, the prayer book of the Yemenite Jews many times, the, the Tiklal. So he was used to, he knew that the Yemenite Jews followed the Rambam, but he never encountered any other form of Jew that completely and utterly had no Kabbalistic or very few Kabbalistic elements at all in their prayers. We know one other thing about his life because he writes about it in every single manuscript that he wrote, and that is that when he was in Egypt, he had an epiphany moment. He records that he came across an, uh, the first or the second edition of the Shulchan Aruch that was printed in the lifetime of the Machaber. And it didn't have, this was before the notes of the Ramah came, which I think in the third or in the fourth edition, a little bit, little bit later on, but still in the, in the life of the, of the Machaber. And he was glancing through it, and he found that the section, the Siman, that deals with uh, Yom Kippur, uh, the Minhag of Kaparot, had a title removed. Now, the title said Kaparot Minhag Shtut. Means a, a minhag of uh, of stupidity, and we know the Machaber himself was not particularly clean, particularly keen on this minhag. This is actually in Siman Tafresh Hay, but he writes there: "Ma'ashinu hagim ra'asot kaparab erev Yom Kippur, lishot tarnigol al kol ben zahar v'lomer alaf of pesukim." You should refrain from doing so. So we know it's not a secret that he didn't like it. But this caption of Minhag Stutt was, was removed, I think, in the 10th edition. It was printed in Amsterdam around 1740. And in the editions of his time, it was not around. I think there's some, some more modern editions now published by uh, Mahon Yerushalayim that reinstated this and corrected many of the other typographical errors. And this was a complete revelation to him that someone could have had the goal, the, the goal and the academic dishonesty to go and doctor the words of the Mahaber. And we'll see, maybe we'll come to this later on, but he took it upon himself to go and go through the whole of the Shulhan Aruch and comment on various textual differences between the text that he had in front of him and the, the text of the, the earlier texts of the, of the Shulhan Aruch itself. Anyway, Let's go back to Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin and his life. He, around 1920, uh, he, shortly after he came to England, he came, as I said, to, to the Mizrahi congregation in Manchester. He was asked by the Spanish and Portuguese congregation to be the Av Bet Din, because this post had been vacant for a long while, and there's no one of sufficient caliber to go and carry the weight of this on their shoulders. So he took up this role, and very shortly after that, he was asked to become the principal of 
Judith Lady Montefiore College. This was a college that was founded in the country state of Sir Moses Montefiore on the death of his wife, Judith, when he founded a shiva in his memory, and he wanted in perpetuity for Tamil Hamim to go and learn there and to recite various prayers in memory of his late wife. Now, for those that don't know England, Ramsgate is a, a seaside town on the south coast. And Sir Moses lived there for most of his life. And it's very interesting. He had a villa there that was called East Cliff Lodge. His immediate neighbor was Princess Victoria, before, uh, who later became Queen Victoria. And they had a little door that connected the two gardens. And he gave a key of the door <clears throat> to Queen Victoria, which she always treasured. So that she could come and walk along, walk into the gardens of uh, Eastcliff Lodge whenever she liked, and a strong friendship developed between the two. And he lived there quite happily until the Second World War. In the Second World War, there was a bit of a problem because it was a port. Ramsgate was a port town, as well as being a seaside uh, seaside resort on the south coast. And very susceptible to the bombing of the Luftwaffe and the uh, the missiles, the V2s that the, the Germans kindly sent across the channel. So the college was shut down and he was evacuated for a while to Tunbridge Wells. And then he, he moved back to Manchester. In this time, he had a, he'd amassed quite a large and valuable library, which he had to put into some <clears throat> storage. And so a lot of his later writings were written without the benefit of the ginormous library that was in Montefiore College and without the benefit of his own very vast and expansive library, which he could only take with him when he traveled, a small number of books to go and uh, just, just what he needed, and the rest he just had no access to. In fact, in one place, he even writes, uh, he didn't have access to a riff when he wanted to go and consult something, so he just had to go and leave this, leave this area void. And his main work is well known, the Keter Shemtov. We'll talk about this a little bit later on. Not, well, not so well known is the commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, because only a very small fraction of it was published in his lifetime. Apart from that, there are a number of other works that he wrote in his, in, in his earlier life, and he had correspondence with our many Hidushe uh, Torah, with the, with the learned people of his time. His wife died in 1949, and that sort of caused him a tremendous anguish, and he died shortly afterwards in 1953, a very sad person uh, on account of it, because he was very, very much attached to his wife, and he had a wonderful family life, and uh, wonderful children, and they were very close together, and the loss of his wife just broke him. That, in short, is his life. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. So, so first of all, um, a couple of things on what you said. Um, we'll get into uh, to the Ketar Shemtov in a second. But before that, um, you said that the Spanish Portuguese were not into Kabbalah and the davening. I want to expound a little bit on that and their community, and we'll discuss more. And, and okay, sure. I mean, this is this is an issue that he mentions many, many times in the Ketar Shemtov, but it's only actually in a few specific places that he spells out the reason for it. And the reason for it is, is as follows. The Spanish and Portuguese community as such were not anti-Kabbalah. There were elements, for example, of the Yemenite community. There was, there was a sect of the, of, of the Yemenites that were called the Dardaim, which means that it's a corruption of the word Dordea, the knowledgeable ones, who were actually anti-Kabbalah. The Spanish and Portuguese were not anti-Kabbalah as such, but they had 
a different take on the subject. What in Spain there were a number of capitalists such as Ramban or Ibn Jacatilia. There were there were capitalists and there were yeshivot around them, but but people such as the Ramban or whatever kept their practices to themselves, and the, the the vast majority of the Spanish and Portuguese community were not actively involved with adding Kabbalistic rites or Kabbalistic Kabbalistic nushal to their to, to to their prayers, and in fact, this was the state of most of or pretty well the, the entirety of of the Jewish people. There were not there were no Kabbalistic prayers in people's prayer books other than those other than around those specific Kabbalists, people who were Kabbalists at the time, like for example the Ramban. What happened was that after the Arizal passed away, Ali's Talmudim or the Talmudim of his Talmudim, people such as for example Emmanuel Chayriki, went up all over Europe to preach the preach this new this this doctrine of the Kabbalah and to suggest to people that they would make various emendations to their prayer book. They would add various kabbalot, they would change certain prayers so that certain prayers had certain number of words in or certain letters and certain numbers of letters in Brahot to make certain kabbalot in certain places in the tefillah. And the Spanish and Portuguese said no. They said, we're not, we're not anti-kabbalah. We don't understand what it is. If some individuals want to do this on an individual basis, all well and good that they're welcome to do so. But as a community, we really want to stick with the prayer book that we inherited from our fathers. And our forefathers before before us, and we don't want to make any changes. And is it also? There's another problem. It's all very well that the Ari came along and said you should make certain changes to the prayer book, or Emmanuel Hariki comes along and says make certain certain changes on on the lines of the, the, the teachings of the Arizal. But what happens when somebody comes along later on and says? Well, because of what the Arizal said, you should make more prayers and more prayers and more prayers. And one finds, for example, various additions to the prayers of the Chidah, of the Rashash, and whatever. So they said, there's, there's no end to the matter. So let's stick with what we've got, not because we think that what you're doing is wrong or ideologically or religiously objectionable to us, but thank you, but no thank you. And let's, uh, let, let's smile at each other and remain friends. This is the way that he sees this. I mean, he doesn't cite any earlier sources for it, but I think it's a pretty fair estimation. I mean, as far as the English community is concerned, they had a number of very learned scholars at Hachamim, people such as David Nieto, the author of the Matidan, Acham Rafael Meldola, the author of the Chupat Hatanim, who came from Italy. They must have had some knowledge of the Kabbalah, but they were not motivated in any way to go and change the prayer book or the state or the status quo of the prayer book uh, of the English community at the time. So there is some precedent with some reasonable halakhic basis for following this line of thought. Okay, now about the minig. So let's go to, to Keter Shem Tov. Now part of this, you mentioned how there were these two communities side by side, these two different Sephardi communities. Yeah. So uh, actually before this, I want to just, just uh, as an aside, were there Ashkenazim in Manchester at this time as well, or mainly Sephardim? Oh yes, there, there, was, there was quite a large Ashkenazi community. What happened was that the Manchester was a very small village before the Industrial Revolution in England. And Jews were attracted there from the middle of the 18th century for trade, there were itinerant peddlers and uh, as the Industrial Revolution got underway, people, people concentrated their merchants for trade. 
but they concentrated around a very because Manchester was just a village or just a growing, rapidly expanding village. They concentrated more or less around the centre of town, uh, as, in, as in many communities. When the Jews arrive, they they go to the centre and then they disperse. So the Ashkenazim went more and more towards the north, and some Ashkenazim, but the majority of the Sephardim, went more and more towards the south. So there were there was an Ashkenazi community in Manchester at the time. In fact, one of his first jobs in Manchester, or part-time jobs, that he actually sat on the Ashkenazi Betzin when he came to Manchester. And he records this actually in the Pahadjitzak, that he was a... Uh, he, he, he records... Uh, one of the thoughts from one of the rabbis in the bed, you know, was someone called Rabbi Yoffi, who was well known in Manchester at the time, and a Diane on the, on, 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 on the bed. In. So, yes, the, 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 the was, there was a very large Ashkenazi community, probably far larger than the Sephardi community, but a lot of the very wealthy merchants were Sephardim, and because of that, they commanded an influence within the Manchester community that was far way and above the proportion of their numbers. So yes, there were Ashkenazim who were living in Manchester at the time. Anyway, coming back to the, the, the Minhag. All my life, I grew up in a Spanish and Portuguese community. And I think it was once when I was about eight or nine, I, I went to the Mizrahi synagogue that was 100 meters away. What happened was that the synagogue, that the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue was closed for renovations. And it took about three or four weeks. because It was, it was a ginormous building and no one has given it a lick of paint for about uh, for, 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 for 40 years, literally. And he did roof repairs and 101 other things. They, they closed the synagogue down for about three or four weeks. So we thought, look, we need to go somewhere. We need to go somewhere for Tefillah on Shabbat. So we went, we went to, the, to the Mizrahi synagogue. And it was very, very weird because it was weird for us because there was Birkat Kohanim, our family of Kohanim, this is something that I want to return to a little bit later on. They did Birkat Kohanim in Shachrit and in Musaf. The Spanish Portuguese only do it, do it in Musaf. And when it came to the, the opening of the Echal for, for Kriyat Torah, there was this peculiar prayer called Brich Jumei that we'd never heard of in our lives before. And there were two paragraphs of the Aleinu. I mean, that, that was apart from the issue of the tunes, which I can understand they were, they, they were, they were different tunes. But I mean, the nature of the, of the prayers was very, very strange to us. And when I was 10, I went to a boarding school, a Jewish boarding school, which has since closed down. And I knew things would be different there because they were Ashkenazi. But also I encountered other Sephardim. There were a number of people that came from Gibraltar or from other places. So it occurred to me that for the first time in my life, Sephardim were not just the Spanish and Portuguese community that I knew, but there was a whole mosaic of Sephardim around the world with slightly different practices, different customs and whatever. And this, this, this was, for me as a kid of 10, was an eye This was at the time before internet. There was no YouTube. We had no access to understanding that who, why, when, and what the other, other types of communities were. Okay. Now, that's, so that, that's part of where I was going to go with this. So when Chacham Shem Tov Gagin is there, is this what leads him to write this monumental work? It's, it's seven volumes, right, on Minah yes. and Halacha, because there's these different Minhagim going on where he is. It is. It, he... 
In part, yes. The thing is that he writes in, in, in the early part of volume three, he writes how he came to the work because he to write the work because he came to Manchester and seen things that he'd never conceived of in his life before. He'd never conceived of the fact that there was a Fadim who had such a, a lukewarm attitude towards the Kabbalah. It was a complete and utter revelation to him. And but the thing is that I get the impression that he he was he had been interested in the subject of Minhag for a long time because he the sources that he quotes indicates to me that he had he'd been collecting prayer books for a long time of, of different different customs. For example, he quotes many times the Minhag of a place called Carpentras, which not many people have heard of, but it's a fascinating community, which I need to tell you the story behind. The Jews were expelled from France in 1230, and there were no Jews in the entirety of France, except in one small area, which was centered around Avignon. And this was an area which was, a, it was, it was, a, it was ruled by a count, and the count of that area was actually the Pope, who was quite amenable to receiving um, material gifts to go and allow the Jews to go and live in this place. So this community of Carpentras, uh, there, were, there were four towns, Avignon, Carpentras, and two other towns. Each one had a slightly different minhag developed in a bubble because they were not in, in communication with in regular there was only a casual communication between them and, uh, and and the rest of world jewry it produced by the by a number of tamidi hachami for example you may have heard that there's a commentary on the shulhan Ruch called uh, the ma'amar mordechai of mordechai karami it's quite it's reasonably well known it's very very voluminous uh, and it's quoted quite often especially on orachim but this community grew up in a bubble, and their minhag developed uh, something pretty unique. And it was only in the middle of the 18th century that actually the minhag was actually printed, came out in printed form. But people used to have passed down from father to son manuscripts of the of the prayers of the Bet Knesset because he did not conform to any minhag that, that you would know. And he had collected a set of these prayer books, which are actually quite rare. And he collected, he collected a set of Yemenite prayer books, which is called the, the Tiklal. And many prayer books are very uh, of other communities, like for example, of the Karaites. How he got hold of all these things without the benefit of a book depository or Amazon, I have really no, no earthly idea. But he must have been interested in collecting old things for, for a long time. And this all came together with, with, with his work. The other thing is that he had, from very early on when he came to, uh, to Europe, when he came to Manchester in 1924, he had a very strong desire to travel. In fact, the, the sermons that you mentioned, Bachad Yitzhak, you'll find that there's a note that for six weeks there are no, there are no drashot on Parashat Teshuvah. And he says, I'm not in my place. And he was off traveling somewhere. Every year he used to go with his wife somewhere for four or six weeks. And this in itself was quite a major achievement because Nowadays, we're used to having the internet. You want to go and book a flight or a plane. It's very easy. You want to see a timetable of a, a train timetable. It's very easy. You can get a train timetable anywhere in the world in, in, in five seconds. In the 1930s, aeroplane travel was only for the very rich. And it, was, it wasn't very common. 
you couldn't book a hotel unless you had to, you, you write to a friend in a town, because you, who, the town you were going to, because you wouldn't know which hotel to go and book anyway. You had no hotel directories. You'd have to go to a travel agent. And all this was very expensive for someone who was not on the highest of salaries. And many times he, in his works, he refers that he, 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 went, he, went, he went to Amsterdam in 1930. He made three or four trips to Spain, which hopefully we'll talk about a little bit later on. We know from the postcards that he sent to his, uh, his children, well, fortunately we still have them, that he went to Genoa, he went to Paris. He was a remarkably well-traveled person for some of those times. And all the time he was interested in looking at Jewish communities, what is different, why did they do this here, why did they do this there. And he records a, lot, a, a fair amount of the information that he saw in the Keteshemt of itself. And it's one reason that makes it such a fascinating work, because it's a record of customs or communities that, 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 that no longer exist. So let's talk about the work. Um... Like it's seven volumes. Um, what is it exactly? Explain a little bit and some examples for the listeners what exactly the work is. All right, all right. Let me explain to you what it is. It, it, one thing I'd state specifically at the outset it's not particularly a book of Minhag, although he talks about a lot of Minhag minutes. He goes through the entirety of the cycle of the Jewish year and the Jewish life cycle. And he comments on on the prayers in a specific way. He, he, uh, whatever takes his fancy. Either it's the Nusach of the Tefillah or it could be customs that surround a particular event like the customs that surround a Brit Milah or a wedding. But also why certain things were instituted. For example, you read the Megillah on the night of Purim. Why do you need to read it again in the daytime? Because you read it already at night. What's the difference between that and the Shira Shirim, which you read or, 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 or Kohelet? that you read it once only and that's the end of the matter. Why do you do it twice or Kiddush or Shabbat? You make Kiddush on Friday night. Why do you need to make another Kiddush on Shabbat? <coughs> Big pardon, Shabbat morning. He goes through, or Siddur Kadin. Why do you say Siddur Kadin on in, in the afternoon of, uh, of, of Shabbat on Minchao? Why do you blow the shofar at the end of Yom Kippur? I mean, the shofar has got nothing to do with Yom Kippur. So why on earth do you blow it then? Why is it such a, a big deal? So he, he, looks at the, he looks at the origin of all of these things, and he's got a set of areas that he investigates. First of all, he looked for anything in the Chumash, or Chumash on the Tanakh, which he knew almost Baal Peh. And then he looked at the Targumim and the Midrashim. And we have to remember that at the time, it was not like nowadays where you can go to a, a, a Bariland city. He did all this from memory. So he, he'd, he'd gone through the whole of Midrash Rabbah and committed it, committed it to memory. He'd gone through the whole of the Midrash Tanchuma, even like the Targum Sheni of Esther, he quotes reasonably often, the Zohar. And looks for any clues as to where a custom may have come from. Then he looked at uh, the Bavli and the Urushalmi, which and he was fluent, equally fluent in the Bavli as well as the Urushalmi, which is quite an achievement. And then look in, in the Kidve of the Arizal. He'd also bring into play any writings of the of, of the Gaonim. And he'd look at the earlier prayer books that we have, the Siddur of Rafsadia Gaon, the Siddur of Rav Amram Gaon. 
by the by, the Siddur of Rav Sadiagan was only printed, I think, in 1947, when most of the Ketashen had already been written. A lot of the citations from the Siddur of Rav Amram Gaon and Rav Sadiagan were taken from the Torah of the Beit Yosef, and not all of these are 100% reliable. So this is one thing that I want to come and talk to when I talk, when I talk later on about the new, the, the new edition of the Ketesh Shemtov that's underway. And then he look at the, 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 the he look at all of all the, the major Rishonim who will talk about this particular issue, but in a very specific manner. What he'll do is it he'll quote all the Rishonim that all, 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 all the Rishonim from a certain list that will talk about an issue. Like he'll mention the Kolbo, the man the, 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 the man Hig or the Abudraham. Or if Yerucham told Adam Bechava, and he'll and he'll see how each one describes a particular custom, and he'll look for any slightest, even the slightest differences in the wording. Maybe one gives a different reason, or one uh, or a different nuance. Is it possible they're coming at this from a different angle, or they have a different perspective, or they see some completely different reason for this custom over here? And then he'll develop this, uh, how this, 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 this will be reflected in the Shona Haruch and where appropriate, uh, the, the acronym. And then he'll look at diverse customs of different communities throughout the world as far as he can, uh, as far as he can lay, lay his hands on. And that is a t that's the way that he operates. And this is the range of the, 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 ra the range and the scope of what he covers is absolutely staggering. And Especially as, I, as I've stressed before, all this was done without the aid of a computer. It was quite an achievement for anyone at that time. So was he focused on mainly Sardi Minag? And also, was he trying to define, you know, tell the reader uh, what Minag they should follow? Or was he just trying to source everything, that kind of work? Well, the thing is, he's actually very, very non-judgmental. I mean, you would, you would have thought, or you might have suspected, or you might have figured out that a Kabbalist would say, this is the right way to do certain things. But he's very non-judgmental. He tells you the Sephardim do this, or these, the Mizrahi Sephardim will do this, the Spanish and Portuguese do that, and the Ashkenazim do that, and maybe he'll mention some other customs as well. But he's very, very non-judgmental. And it's, it would be wrong to, to, to think that the book was only interested in Sephardim, because he mentions a lot of practices, uh, a lot of minhagim that stem from the Mahs of Vitri that was written by one of the pupils of Rashi. And uh, many other Ashkenazi works, Rishonim messages, Rabbeinu Yerucham, that I've already mentioned. And so I think the, the, work, the work itself should be of interest to anyone who wants to go into the, delve into the, uh, delve into the world of minhag. Now, as I mentioned, it's, it was seven volumes. Also, it was printed like in a smaller size. Is it? So you you talked about the new edition. You could already discuss it here. I mean, you said you're, you're working on a new edition now. Um, what is going to go into the new edition um, as opposed to the old one? Okay, well, there will be plenty in the new edition that won't be in the old one, and I, I, I can I can itemize them. First of all, if you look in the older edition and the section of Yom Kippur, it cuts out somewhere in the middle of Musa. There's nothing at all on Mincha and Neila. So I was able to, one of the grandchildren made available to us, the, the, uh, available to me, the man, the, 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 the sole the manuscript that they've got, which, is, which, 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 covers, which covers Kippur and also um, Sukkot and Simchat Torah. And 
I found that a whole section, about 25% of the material that was on Kippur, was never printed in the first place. So that's going to be added here. Also, I've got a copy of the Keteshemtov that was owned by the Mahaber himself, where he'd make various marginal notes. So that's going to go in as well. At the end of it, at, at the end of the Keteshemtov, the first two volumes, he writes some, uh, a lot of additional material, and nobody knows it's there because it's at the end. It just says, refer to page so-and-so, and, and stick this chunk in there. But if it's not there, when you're looking at it, you wouldn't know to look somewhere else. Then there's another issue as well, in that some topics come up in different places. And so he'll write about the topic in one place. And when it turns up somewhere else, he'll add on a whole more, lot more in, an, in, a, in a later volume, some additional information. And unless you know where, where to go and look, you won't actually string all the bits together. Like, let me give you an example. But we know, and have to lie, you have spices, you've got basamim, and you've got fire, right? What happens <clears throat> if Yom Kippur falls on Shabbat? Motzei Shabbat, do you actually have a Neshama Yetira on Yom Kippur that requires spices or not? Fire, obviously, um, everyone can, should be able to work out. You need to have a light. Not only a light, but a pre-existing light. That was lit before, before Shabbat. But then it, this, this topic occurs elsewhere. For example, if you go to Beit Ha'avel, should an Avel have Basamim on Motzei Shabbat? And even if he shouldn't, supposing other people go that are acquaintances of his to make up a minyan, should they go and smell spices, even though he's the, the, the one himself wouldn't? Or as happens this year, we're going to have a Tisha B'Av that's Nidhe, that's pushed off from Shabbat. So obviously we can't, we can't have any wine Motzei Shabbat and we make the blessing on the fire. Should we have the Samim or not? So this topic occurs in many different volumes and it, quite a few times he'll, he'll say, well, I wrote this in, the, in my first volume, but now I found this or I found that and the, the, this is something else to take into the equation. But there's no way of... Because the thing is not indexed, you wouldn't know where to look in any place to go and find all the other bits to put things together. The other thing is that he 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 copies out when he acknowledges that he copies out. It's not a, it's not a case of plagiarism. Large passages of the Bet Yosef, and in the editions of the Bet Yosef that he had, a lot of the some of the references were wrong. And also, in the process of transferring the material from the better safe in front of him to the manuscript, and from the manuscript to the, the, to, the, to, the to the printing house, even more, even more mistakes occurred. So every single source is going to be provided in its place. And at the end of it, a massive index, which covers the entire seven volumes, please God, and it will bring the whole lot together. Also, at the end of the manuscript that I spoke about, he had also various other editions and uh, to Shavuot and other bits and other material that was related to Keteshemtov. So all this is going to be put into its place. So you can see the whole clear picture in one go, as well as references in other, other manuscripts that he talks to, uh, he talks about a, a topic and, and, and comes to it here. The, the, the whole lot will be indexed together uh, for the first time, hopefully. And you're working on this now? 
I'm working on this now. I mean, I'm hoping that maybe within the first, the next two years, let's say, the first two volumes, which, which, which deal with uh, weekday and Shabbat, will come out. And uh, the rest will, I think the other volumes will have to come out together, maybe a, a year or two after that, uh, as a unity with, with, with all the proper indices together in one go, hopefully. Now, if anyone familiar with the old edition uh, was like in a small, almost like a mini size, is it going to be like that or are you going to make it into a regular size safer this time? No, I'm going to make it into a regular size safer, hopefully, and uh, hopefully with, large, with, with a larger print and a little bit more readable because the, other, the, <clears throat> the, the first editions and the reprints, the print is not actually all that clear. Right, for those familiar, right? That's 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 what uh, was was curious about. Okay, so let's talk now a little bit. Obviously, there's much more we can continue talking about the minog. Maybe when it comes out, we could do another podcast. But let's talk about the sefer that you published relatively recently, which is the two volumes of sermons, is Drashot Pachad Yitzchak, which are interesting. Talk about the manuscript and where that came from, and also his style in there. So let's start just to, generally about these sermons, when he gave them, where they were from, the manuscript, and that kind of thing. All right. Okay, well, the, the work itself is made, out, made up out of two separate manuscripts. What happened was that when he died, his son sold off in great haste a lot of his library and some of his manuscripts to finance the publication of the, Ketesh, of the, remainder, of the, the remainder of the Ketesh Shem that wasn't published in the author's lifetime. And one half of this manuscript ended up with a family, and the other half ended up with a book collected in America, and it finally it made, it, made its way to Israel. And the Rosh Hashiva of Rabbi Shvami, Rabbi Yaakov Hillel, showed it to me, showed me this manuscript, but they couldn't do much with it, because it was only on half the, half, 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 half of the Chumash. You can't really print half a safer. And I was casually chatting to a friend in America, and he said, you know, there's a, there's a half manuscript with the family of Drashot on the Torah. I said, well, that sounds interesting because it's a half over here in Jerusalem. And so we made the Shiduk, so to speak. And there is now a complete run, bar the six weeks that I mentioned about when he was off on holiday somewhere, of commentaries on the Torah. Now, when he was in Egypt, he, he served on the Betin. He wasn't experienced as being a communal rabbi. He didn't have to give a drashat or congregation every week. He wasn't attached to any particular congregation in Cairo. Here, he, for the first time in his life, he was a pastor and a teacher and a minister to a congregation as well as a land on the Betin. And so he had to go and give Torah to his, uh, to his flock. So he starts off very gingerly. The, earliest, the, early, the, the earlier part of the book, is formatted very simply in a sort of question and answer, where he takes important, pa- the relevant passages from the classical Sephardi commentaries, such as the Pahadiyatsako of Isakarama or the Abarbanel, and it, it, it's like a conversation between a pupil and his teacher. And he said, the pupil asks a question, and he gives an answer, which is which is basically the answer of 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 of, of the of, of the Barabanel or whoever, and he, he 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 organizes things in a question and answer format, and then as he becomes more and more 
used to the idea of talking in the congregation. This format breaks down a little bit, or in some cases breaks down completely. And he tends to bring in more of his own ideas or talks about uh, things, things that are bothering him or things that ought to be, uh, ought, ought to be, um, ought to be talked about. And there's, there's definitely a development in the, um, in, 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 his, in his style throughout the, throughout, throughout the sermons. And he only stopped because I think that I think after uh, what happened was the, the the writing was done in retrospect. If you look at all the the captions on top of all the sermons, he says this this is the sermon that I delivered on Shabbat so and so. So it is using the past tense. The sermons themselves were probably delivered in Arabic because that was the language that he was most familiar with, and also his congregants were most familiar with. Even at the, towards the end of his life, his English was not really that marvelous. And so I'm pretty, pretty sure that they were actually delivered in Arabic at the time. Now, something else interesting, well, you mentioned this, is that it's a kind of question-answer. He has the Talmud asking a question and the Rav giving an answer. And he uses, like you said, okay, this is yeah. Rama, the Barbanel. He actually has Meshalem from the Dubna Magid and Benishchai and others. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. And even, even so, even the, oh, just emphasizes, even the parts that he's quoting the classical commentators, he's, it's written very easily, it's very readable, it's very enjoyable the way he asks question answer, he asks usually simple questions that one learns right. to come across. He also has this stuff on Yom Tevim in here, there's Pirkei in there. Um, so maybe you want to also just explain a little bit more of the style and also um, some example, I don't know if you have an example or two that you wanted to give, like something that he says, um, that he talks about. I've got to be honest. I don't think I could do that off the top of my head. Okay, but more on. But what about more of the style that he uses? Just more of that, like you said, it's more. At least he started off with that Talmud and Rav. So that was that was the style. It was like a yeah, that, that was the style. But then then the thing is, he's looking for he's looking for a he's looking for a topic, and the topic then he slots into this question and answer format. Later on, the, the passages become a lot longer as he feels that there are things that he wants to go and talk about. And that, that's why it, it, it's, it's not just a short question and answer thing. It's, it, it's something that he wants to get off his chest or he feels that his congregants need to know about or need to be told. Mm -hmm. And that's why the passages become much longer. He starts to express himself in a much freer sort of a way. So this is two volumes. Uh, it's a set of a published by Vachalov right. around a year ago, whatever. So that's available. I'll, yeah. I'll put a link to that in the show's notes that anyone okay. interested can check it out. Any listeners? Um, it's, it, I, you know, I've enjoyed it. Look at like I said, it, it's nice, and uh, that that's that's a nice work. Now, something else that you published of his, you published uh, two two other things. Um, but uh, Vachalov has a journal for those not familiar. Minagnazim, fascinating manuscripts and other things in their articles. Very interesting. So in uh, you published. Well, let's start with the later one in in, in Yud Beis in, in the twelfth volume. Right. You publishes travel that you mentioned earlier. So there's a manuscript, a very interesting story behind the manuscript, and some very interesting personal stories of his where he traveled around in Spain and Portugal. So talk a little right. about that. Right. Yeah, okay. He made a number of trips to Spain and Portugal between 1928 and 1932, and 
this was quite an emotional thing for him. I mean, you, there are some parts he becomes extremely emotional. What happened was that his family, I think, was from Fez, but they went for a while to Castile, uh, one of one of his forebears to study Torah. He, I mean, the Gagin family goes back a long time. They can trace their their family back at least five or six hundred years. Uh, so, sorry, seven to eight hundred years, and a lot of this time was in a fair amount of the earlier time was spent in Spain before the exile. And he wanted to go and visit places that were associated with with with, with, uh, with Sepharad before the exile. And I said, as I said before, travel in those days was not easy, and there was no way to plan things by internet. Had he had he lived today, uh, now he'd probably accomplished twice as much as he would as he would have done then. But he he was he was one the, the one of the earliest rabbis to go off on a on a field trip to go and collect raw data. And there's a, there's a story behind it. This, this, his, his, Rabbi Shem Gagin's son gave me a copy of this manuscript and kept the original. I put it somewhere in my house. And I, I completely forgot about it. And when I made Aliyah, I looked for it. And I couldn't find it. But at that stage, I hadn't completely entered my house in England, which I only, only did three or four years later. And when I was in, in this, in, uh, looking around in the cellar, one of the last boxes I came to actually had this manuscript in it. So I said, well, I want to go and this looks really interesting. Now, comes, now is the time to go and publish. But I didn't do, do anything with, with it before because it's not, not actually complete. I think it was complete, but he didn't get around to making a fair copy of the entirety of the manuscript. And I'll come back to this point in a minute. So I contacted his grandson who was left all of his manuscripts. And I said, you know, do you have the original because I've got a copy? And he said, no. So it got lost in transit somewhere along the line. And, uh, and it was only this photocopy that was given to me by chance that, 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 that saved the day. He writes in the beginning of it that like an introduction, an index of the points that he wants to cover, and only half of it is there. And he also writes that the Montefiore Endowment, who were the, the, the governors of Montefiore College, had agreed to fund the publication of this item and the translation of it. So I assume it must have been written out in full, but where, where on earth the rest of it is, heaven only knows. Anyway, he describes how he went to Spain and he faced a number of frustrations on the way because he couldn't plan. There was no way to go and plan his trip. For example, he goes to Madrid. He said he was looking. He went to the National Library where they had a fair number of manuscripts of the of the Rishonim of Sepharad, and he wanted, in particular, to look for various uh, documents, shtarot. And those he couldn't find, but he couldn't look at the manuscripts because the library was going to be closed for some national holiday. And then he had to move on to his uh, to, to, to his next port of call. And then he, he had a number of other frustrating experiences. When he went, for example, to Barcelona, he went to the municipal library there, there again to look for manuscripts. And he found it was uh, they had a catalogue, but it was closed for refurbishment. So we never got to see anything. So the librarian suggested that he would go to the local Catholic seminary. So he goes togged up in his garb to uh, the local Catholic, semi uh, local Catholic sem uh, seminary. 
And he has a brings a calling card. He, he writes about this quite quite vividly. He leaves his calling card with the with with the man at the door, and he takes it to the to his superior. He goes in to see the superior, and the gentleman can see from his calling card that this gentleman, this person standing in front of him, is a rabbi. And there was immediately a tension in the air. He said, "We didn't even ask him to go and sit down." He said, well, "What do you want?" So he said, "We've come to look for. I've come to look for various uh, Hebrew manuscripts. Do you have any Hebrew manuscripts in your libraries?" So the priest said to him very dismissively, "Well, we don't keep these types of things here." And it was a very frigid, cold conversation. So then Rabbi Gagin asked him, well, where could I find Hebrew manuscripts or information about the Jewish community of Barcelona? So the priest, unfriendly or unhelpful as he was, gave him the card of a lecturer in the, in the university who Rabbi Gagin called on. And he was so helpful. He took him around. He showed him various manuscripts. He explained to him what's what, and he was really, really helpful. Throughout the conversation, he recalled some of the conversations that he had with people, and there were Jews who were living in Spain at the time, but they were very wary because there had been the order of expulsion in 1492, and the Jews had no legal status, no legal community in Spain at the time. They were all nervous that they would be kicked out or expelled or they would have their property confiscated. It was in 1492. And people would, some of the Christians would ask him, but when will the Jews come back to Spain? So he said, quite frankly, huh? when you give us uh, rights as citizens here, we're happy to come back again. But to me, what's interesting is that a rabbi took the time and took a very substantial amount of his salary to go around and to look and try and find try and try and find out on the ground what is going on. He made other trips to the which were which he, which, which he records fragments of in the Ketoshem Tov. He made trips to uh, to Morocco, to Tetuan, to, uh, to Tangiers, to Gibraltar. And he mentions that many times the customs of Gibraltar and of Tangiers, things that he'd seen, and he recorded them to go and um, uh, for, for, for future use. And I'll bring you one example that may be of interest. There's one verse in... Bereshit in the Pasha of, of Vayishlach, which talks about Ruben and Bilha. And this ver the verse, the way that it's written in the Humash, has got two sets of um, of ta'amim, of trop, of, uh, of notes. And according to one set of notes, there is a, there is a, um, a break, and this verse is written as two, as two. And according to the other set of notes, it's all one continuous verse. But obviously, where you put a break in the verse, can have an effect on the meaning. And it gives it a completely different meaning. So he says that in Gibraltar, the custom is to read this verse. So it's not a question of Ketiv and Kri. There are just two sets of notes for this particular verse. But of course, in Gibraltar, they have the custom of reading this particular verse in the Torah twice. Once according to one set of notes, and then according to the other set of notes. And they're not at all concerned with 
have sex or, or interruption. And then he tries to find a source for this. And he finds a source in a Tikkun Sofrim, which is called Ezra Tosafer. It's printed in Amsterdam in around 1740 or 1750, I think. There was a Hazan of the Spanish and Portuguese community in Amsterdam, who was called Hazan uh, Pisa, who was also a, a Talmud Hacham. And he produced the first, what you'd call Tikkun Sofrim, it was ever printed, uh, ever printed. He's got a set. There are two versions of this. One is printed as a tikkun without any vowels at all for a sofa to go and uh, to, to go and write out the sefer Torah or for a reader to go and prepare the, the Kriyata Torah. And another version with identical typographical layout, except for the vowels and the notes. Uh, so, so with the vowels and with the notes for someone to go and uh, study from or to go and pre pre prepare their reading. And in this particular edition, he records that there is a tradition to read the verse one way in public and another way in private. So he, when he sees something, he, he does make quite strenuous efforts to go and find some source for, for, for whatever, whatever it is that he's looking for. Now, anyone interested in this in this uh, travel log, I guess, so to speak. So I said it's in Valichelik uh, Yudbeis, the twelfth volume of Nazim. I'll try again if I find a link for that. I'll try to put a link in the in the show's notes. Now, right. another thing you published in an earlier volume, I don't remember offhand which one, is the Azharot Lepesach from Rabbi Dalevi. We had a beer on, so if you want to discuss that small work as well, yes, yes, I explain to explain to what it is. There was a custom of he, 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 First of all, um, one of the many hats that Rabbi Shem Tovigin wore was that he was an expert grammarian and a philologist. And he took a number of very early medieval poems and wrote commentaries on them. And he published, Montefiore College published a journal called Yehudit. And there's another astronaut uh, there of somebody called, uh, I can't remember the name of the author, which we found in, in, in manuscripts. And he published somewhere else uh, in one of his earlier books, um, which is a, a poem that where every verse, I think, starts with a language. It's written by Rabbi Yehuda Badershi, who's the author of the Paninim Rav, I think it is. It's a, a, book of, a book of Musar. I can't remember the name exactly. Anyway, with all of these medieval poems he he annotates them and writes two commentaries one dealing with the meaning of the words and then the wider sense that the author is trying to convey now we, the Ashkenazi community is familiar with the Akdamut that you, you recite on, uh, on, on Shavuot in the, in the, after the first verse of the, the Kriyat HaTorah the Sephardim also have a custom uh, called Asharot, which is also like uh, of the Tariag Mitzvot. There are very, various versions of it, which also which is said in Shavuot. But other communities also have the have the custom of reciting Asharot er, on Erev Pesach, where all the halachot of Pesach are written out in a verse form. And he writes that maybe it is that writing out these writing out halachot in verse form was actually an aid to memory. And there were some communities that, that had the custom of reciting this publicly. And I came across an example of, 
of such a community. There's a place called Parul, which is near Cochin. And a very small amount of Hebrew printing used to take place there in the 1930s and the 1940s by, by lithograph. And they, they printed this Asrop because presumably they, they also used to read it on, on Erev Pesach. And it, what it is, is it, it's all the laws of Pesach in verse 4. And he discusses, for example, where the, the Mahaber Yehuda Halevi is deciding either like the Rosh or the Rambam or the Rif. And he worked backwards from the poem to, to the halacha and where it, where, which, the, which like which Rishon, the Yehuda Halevi is, is following. Just, just to add, by the by, he, what happened was that in Manchester, there was a very famous library, which is now incorporated into the university called the John Rylands Library. And they bought the manuscript collection of one of the, I think the, the, the Dukes of Devonshire, the Dukes of Sussex, I can't remember, who had some first grade manuscripts. And many, many of them are at least six or 700 years old. And there is a, a Haggadah, which is called the Rylands Haggadah, which is, I think, one of only three known examples of Haggadot that survived uh, the, 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 the Spanish Inquisition and the exile from Spain. The other one is the Sarajevo Haggadah, which is uh, maybe slightly better known. Um, and, and there is a third one, which is in London, called the Brother Haggadah. And this is this poem is written in, in a micrograph all the way around, but it's not written complete. It's missing, I think, the first the, the first few verses. He writes that he got these missing verses from a critical edition that was published by a scholar called Brody. And he wrote this, this commentary, which is uh, partly dealing with the language and partly dealing with the, with, with the halakha, on the entirety of the of the of, of this poem. And it's it's a very interesting read. It's, it's an interesting way of writing and recording halakha, and maybe something that we're not quite used to nowadays. So maybe it's not something we would even appreciate nowadays necessarily. But this is what was done in those times. So again, this is one of the other volumes of Minagnazim that I'm not remember, remembering which one offhand it was published in. Um, now, something else that I wanted to point out that I didn't, I don't think I mentioned is, especially you can see this in anyone will have the two volumes, the sermons, the drushes that we mentioned earlier. You know, there's a lot of uh, facsimiles there of his, first of all, the different smichas that he got and also of his manuscripts and his farm. He has, especially the Azharot we just mentioned, the Sharblat, he had a really beautiful handwriting and he has the, he kind of like penciled out or put in pen, I don't know, the, the Sharblat, you know, the title page with his name and he almost like wrote it out like perfectly, especially you could see the one on the Shulchan Aruch, which we mentioned earlier, which is kind of really beautiful to see if anyone, you know, is interested in looking at it. Um, now, I don't know if you wanted to mention a little bit more about that Shulchan Aruch. You discussed he was just doing this kind of critical edition of Shulchan Aruch. Do we, is that something that you would work on to publish? Is there more of that in manuscript that hasn't been published? Right. The thing, the thing is, this, as I mentioned to you, he was, he was, he was sparked off by this, by, by, the, by this mention of the Kaparot. What happened was that he, wrote, he published the first two volumes of Ketoshentov in 1934. And then he didn't resume on this topic until about 1940 or 1941. So the question is, what? Would a compulsive writer do for six years? Because he wasn't fiddling his fingers. So he—that was a time that he worked on this edition of the Shulchan Aruch. And what he does is that he looks at—he had a manuscript of part of Orachaim, 
And he had early editions of the rest of the Shulchan Aruch and compared those editions with the editions that, that, that are in our hand. Some of the points that he makes are actually of halachic consequence. Now, uh, the, the, the issue of the Kaparot, I want to go and return to uh, in a minute, but there, 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 are other, there are other issues which are of halachic importance. For example, you count the Omer, right? And you say after, after seven days, you say, Hayom, Astarayamim. You say, La Omer or Ba Omer. Now, we talk about Lag Ba Omer. Everyone talks about lag ba'omer, but the Mahaber actually talks about lag la'omer. He said you count esara yamim la'omer. And this is also, I think, going from memory, the version that's found in, um, in, um, in, in a number of early manuscripts, uh, early manuscripts of, the, of the prayer book. Another point related issue is when you, when you count the days of the omer, you say hayom esara yamim la'omer, sheheim now, do you say La Omer afterwards or Ba Omer or either or neither? So he makes the point that the Shoran actually doesn't say you should second, say a second Omer because it's self understood that if you say that today is the 10th day of the Omer, which is a week and three days, it's pretty obvious that this is a week and three days of the Omer, which, 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 which you just counted. It's not brain science to go and, to, 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 to go and add the numbers up. And the Shulchan does not record that you should say the second Omer, only the first one. So there are cases where there are halachic ramifications to studying the earlier text of the Shulchan The other thing that he points out in a number of cases is that that which has been written by the Mahaber and that's been written by the, the Ramal have got confused. And sometimes the, the writing of one is attributed to the other because of uh, the sloppiness of the printer. Now, since he wrote this thing in the 1930s, we've got more modern editions of Shulchan Aruch, such as the one that was print, printed by uh, Mahon Yerushalayim, where a lot of the text has been checked and amended in line with the earlier editions. So what I want to do is that, I'm, so one thing that I'm currently discuss, discussing with Abba Shalom at the moment is to produce a facsimile edition and couple it with a printed abridgment of the work, because some of the notes that he makes have really got no halachic ramification, whether a word is spelled with an aleph at the end or a hay at the end, or the word spelled with two yod or one yod, it's still the same word. There's no practical difference to, uh, to anyone how it is spelled. So anything that is, I would say, per peripheral or secondary importance, we're thinking to go at the moment to go and leave it out, because otherwise, the important points that he does make will get subsumed and all the other points which are less important and uh, will not stick out. Now, what about any other writing? So right now, like you said, this is something you're discussing and the Keter Shem Tov you're working right. on. Are there any other writings of his that you're working on or any other projects that you're yes. currently working on? Yeah, but there are, there are three other manuscripts that we know of his. One of them is in the Hebrew National Library. And I, I've had it scanned. It's the most gorgeous manuscript. He, he was, you might have mentioned before, he's, he was a tremendous artist. He used to decorate title pages and other pages with all sorts of, uh, all sorts of or ornaments in his own hand. What happened was, when he was 16, he was given a very thick pinkas, like a notebook, a jotter book, 
I assume by his father, and he had it very beautifully bound in leather with ornate tooling on it. And the first few pages, he records uh, two drashot of his of the rashash, capitalistic uh, kabanot for uh, to catch your fire on the first on the second days, uh, and the drashah or the drashah that surrounds it. That's not his own work, and then. He he starts recording his own chidushim on the uh, on um, on Rambam and on Shas, and for a very young mind, someone of sixteen years old, he's a quite quite advanced chidushim, and he signs sometimes. He, he writes Sha'ag, which I assume is an acronym for Shem Tov Gagin, but one can't help thinking that maybe there's a literary, literary reference here to the Shagat Harier, or this young lion here that's roaring out with a, with a very strong question or a contradiction in the Ramba. That is one manuscript, uh, which I'm working on at the moment. Well, as I've worked on it, it's, it's, it's now going through uh, proofreading and hopefully will be published uh, within a year or so. The other manuscript was written when he was in Egypt and he had, he was addressed Shailot as a Dayan Either things were referred to him by the by, by colleagues on the Ashkenazi Betin, or some were generated from within inside his own community. And there again, for someone of quite a young age, he goes. He writes very respectfully to the to the chief rabbi of Egypt, uh, Rabbi Ben Shimon, who wrote a book called uh, Nahar Misraim about the customs of Egypt. And he had certain questions about some of the things that he wrote there. We don't have all of them. He didn't record all of his, all the correspondence between them. But there, but there again, there are some quite strong objections to some of the things that, the, 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 that, he, that, that this person had written. And this person was very, very substantially more advanced with him, both in, in years and, and in learning. But he was quite a perky um Quite a year, perky and unstoppable young fellow, and uh, he, he has he has serious questions on uh, some, 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 some of these piskei halacha. The third item that we, we've got, I think, is probably date later, probably from from England, which also is more more chedushim on the on shas and on on rambam. And so the idea is to go and take all of these uh, these bits and pieces and to go and. Put them into some sort of an order to have to make a section on questions on the Rambam, questions on Shas, questions on Shulchan Aruch, and uh, and Shelot and Teshuvot. And he dealt with a wide variety of questions uh, throughout his life. I mean, one of the one of the Shelot and Teshuvot actually appears at the end of the manuscript of the Keteshento. It's a family that I know in Manchester where the husband and wife were married during the war. And the husband had to go off to fight. <clears throat> so they had a short period of time of <coughs> married life together. And the husband had to go off to the war. Nine months later, a kid pops out. A male child pops out. So, all right, Pidion, uh, Brit Mila, no problem. Pidion, how does the father form Pidion when he's three or 4,000 miles away? Can you make Shlichut for Pidyon Aben? 
because it's a mitzvah which is given specifically to the father. And can he go and delegate somebody else to go and deal with it? So eventually he comes to the conclusion that the best thing is that the grandfather who's living in Manchester performed the pidyon and he receives a, an authorization by telegraph, by telegram from the father of the child to go and, uh, to go and perform the act. And I, actually, I know I know the family, and they have, they have they, 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 they tell this story uh, among amongst the family. And here's here's the written side of the side of it, which, which they were completely unaware of. So I sent it, I sent it to them, and they were they, they were over the moon. But his his writings cover quite a vast expanse of um, uh, of Jewish no, of, 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 of 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 Jewish learning. He also had a correspondence with. A senior dyan on the London Betin who went to Eretz Israel. He was called uh, Rabbi Hillman. He wrote a set of chidushim on the Shas and also on Chumash called uh, Or Hayashar. It's quite well known and very well respected. He came and he made Aliyah in about 1930. And in his, in his yeshiva, at one stage, there was the late Rabbi uh, Eliashiv and Rabbi Baldenberg and Rabbi Awaba. So it must have been. Uh, studying at quite an advanced level. Anyway, Rabbi Hillman produced over a period of about 10 or 15 years on Shas Bavli and Yerushalmi a set of edition which is called Or Yashar. And he sent copies to Shem Tov Degin. And he had, we have some of the correspondence between them where he makes various comments. Or has got various very penetrating questions of what Rabbi Hillman wrote, and Rabbi Hillman was many years his senior, but it didn't hold him back from uh, letting us know if he had a, if he had a, very respectfully, if he had a problem or a criticism to make. Okay, so. Okay. So, so, so these, this, this correspondence. Hopefully, we're going to publish this a separate article in in, in Minagaz, It's quite fascinating to go and read as as a as a subject in itself. You know, it wasn't written as a Hebrew or as a Sefer or as a country. It's just odd letters collected together. But it 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 it, 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 it makes an interesting read. This correspondence was published, or it's going to be published. It's going to be published. It's, it's on the list. Okay, so and then just finally, you you mentioned earlier we you you have published a number of other edited a number of other svarim through Avat Shalom. Are there any other svarim from other Talmidei Chachamim that you're working on now, or now you're focused on Chacham Gagin mainly? Well, I'm working on Chacham Gagin, which is going to take two or three years. I mean, I've got certain other projects that I have in mind. They, they started, they started a, a project which I may continue with, and that. There are two very important prayer books for the for, for the Sephardim. One is called Beit Oved, and one called one's called Beit Menucha, which are printed with the printed in the Vorno in the 1840s. It's basically a compendium of halachot with with a siddur. At, at every point in the siddur, there the the, the, the copious um, notes from the relevant sections from the the, the Birke Yosef or from the Shalmei Sibur or from. Uh, the David Emet of the of, of the Chida, whole collections of halachot. And after the author uh, Rav Ashkenazi passed away, other rabbis continued with this with this set. Made made a set of masorim for all of for all of all, all of the yamim uh, yamim tovim. The Beit Beit Din for Yom Kippur, Beit um, 
بيت هالشوي بقى فور 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 سكوت اند فور اسمها ترا اند بيت مويد فور بيساخ اند سو all these things will need to be worked on to go and check the sources to go and check the spellings and whatever it is but that, that in itself is going to be quite a fair chunk of work and also i want to work on the books of rabbi israel yakov al-ghazi in particular he wrote two books with the shami sibonis shami hagiga which are quite frequently quoted but and now actually i'm printed uh, a retyped set version of them with some some annotations about 25 years ago but in the last 25 years computers and also which is which is a, an external hard drive it's got over 100,000 books and the barilan cd have made a huge difference to hebrew learning and, and and our ability to go and edit accurately sfarim and i think it's important to go and use the the blessings that we have of our age to the maximum to go and take classical works and to go and present present them to the torah reading public in the best possible way and with the best uh, typographical layout which is, and, and graphics which is something that Abba is very good at doing yeah, and you mentioned the Siddur based Ayyad based Menucha they just published that the two volumes just those two right. just the two which just published yes yeah, so you're talking about the other one so yeah and the the Shamit Siddur and Shamit I think they printed it a while ago like you said I think they maybe yes. it wasn't around for a while maybe they reissued it now but like I said it wasn't redone you know it needs more no no, no no what I want to do is to to to, to re-edit it because not all of the references are there there's no index to it and there's a lot a lot more that can be done to go and help the reader than the, the, done at the moment yeah absolutely okay so so thank you for joining me and like i said i'll post a link definitely to the pachad yitzchak the two volume of sermons of joshot which I, you know i think are very interesting and the menagnazim the 12th volume which has the um if i find the link to it which has the the travels and his travelogue diary, and as well as I'll, I'll find which other one has the other stuff from him, the other the Azharot for Pesach that you published, and I'll link to that as well. Again, assuming I can find a link to Minagnazim to the volumes. And um, thank you for joining me to discuss Chacham Gagin. Very fascinating, very interesting life and works. And uh, thank you for joining me. Okay, well, thank you for having me. All the best to you.